John chapter 13, verse 31, when he was gone, talking about Judas, who had left the room at this point, the Bible says, Jesus said, the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot go. But a new command I give you. This is a massive moment in human history. He says, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. Father, we thank you for your word. We are so grateful to either be in your house this morning or watching online. We're thankful for this opportunity to worship and to hear your word. Thank you for bringing us together. Thank you for the fact that before this day even arrived on the calendar, you were already in the background planning and strategizing and making Things happen so that we could be in this place today. Thank you for that. Thank you for your great love wherewith you have loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. amen. So in John 13, 34, Jesus says, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And when I see this, I think, a new one. That's, that's all I need, is a new one. As if 600 plus weren't already enough, a new one. But what you have to see here is this was not an addition to. This was one to sum up all that God wants for us and from us. Now notice the massive difference too. There's a little feedback on my mic I can hear. If, Notice this massive difference that Jesus initiates here as well. He says, love one another as I have loved you. Now, this is important because in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus sums up the law by saying that this is all of the law and the prophets hang on these words. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. This is different. This is a massive shift in motive. This is a massive shift in how we are to love because God recognizes that we are unable really to correctly love other people because we are honestly unable to love ourselves correctly. So we're going to move off of something that is old, that is obsolete, and we're going to move into something new. And Jesus makes this command, gives us this command, and he says, I want you to love each other not the way you want to love each other, not the way you love yourself, but I want you to look to my example of love, and that is how I want you to love each other. Is there anybody thankful for the example of Jesus that makes it clear how we should love one another? Someone asked this question of me one time, and I was struggling with what to do, and I wanted them to give me a set of rules that I was to live by. But they asked me this question. They said, what does love require of you? 
That changed the whole conversation because in my mind, I was looking for the least amount of activity that I could do before I crossed the line or didn't cross the line. I wanted to walk right up to the line. I wanted to hit them without hitting them. You know what I'm talking about? Like I wanted to do as much as I could without offending God, or I wanted to do the least that was required of me. But they asked me this question and it's forever shaped my life and changed me. What does love require of you? See, the lawless person and the law keeper want to know basically the same thing. The lawless person wants to know how far they can go before they cross the line. And the law keeper wants to know what is the least that is required of them. (laughs) And I know you're concerned. Over the past couple of weeks, we've said some very strong things. And I know the concern is if we are told, Robbie, if we're telling people we're not under the law, that the new covenant has come and the old has become obsolete, how are we supposed to keep people in line? What about the Ten Commandments? What about morality? What, what about all of these things that we think are the things that hold us to our confession of faith? But I would suggest to you that most people aren't asking the question about the commands of the Old Covenant so that they can be held accountable for their gossip. I think most people are asking that question because they want a way to feel superior to people who break the laws that they don't struggle to keep. Because listen to me, it is easier to not kill than it is to love like Jesus. It is easier to not steal than it is to love like Jesus. So the new covenant is not one that is less demanding. It is actually more demanding. It's less complicated but it is way more demanding of us. The Bible, listen to me, first of all, we have to understand this. The Bible is not a flat text where every passage carries the same weight. This is why Jesus comes on the scene and he begins to, in Matthew chapter five, he says, you have heard it said, quoting Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. You have heard it said, but I say to you, the problem with the Bible says is what the Bible says. So when you throw out a statement like, well, the Bible says, what are you talking, what part of the Bible are you talking about? Are you talking about the old covenant? Are you talking about the part where the Bible says that if you disobey your parents, you should be stoned to death? What are we talking about when you say the Bible says? So the problem with the Bible says is what the Bible says. (laughs) So it's not a flat text where every verse and every line carries the same weight. The book of Proverbs is is called a book of Proverbs. It's a book of wisdom. It's not a book of promises. It's not. It's a book of Proverbs. It's a book of wisdom. These are guidelines. These will help you. But it's not promises. So we have to understand and distinguish (laughs) the authority of what Jesus is saying Versus the authority of what Moses was saying, what Moses declared, what Abraham said, what Solomon said. It's funny, isn't it? We take take marriage advice from a guy who had hundreds of wives and concubines. That's funny to me. I just think that's hilarious. Not saying that there aren't things in Proverbs that don't help us. Of course they do. Paul told Timothy that all scriptures God breathed. 
It's profitable for teaching, for comfort, for rebuke. It's profitable for training in righteousness, but it doesn't make one righteous. There's actually a higher, better way, and Jesus says it when he gives this new command, that you love one another the way I have loved you. This is actually a higher standard than thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet. This is much more demanding than that. And because we have actually abandoned this new command, what we have today is a world that is skeptical of what we believe Not because, like Mark said, because they are skeptical of God. They are skeptical of what we believe because of how we treat each other. Jesus didn't say they will know you are my disciples if you can quote the Old Testament. He didn't say they will know you are my disciples if you can preach the paint off the walls. He didn't say they will know you are my disciples if you can sing like an angel. He said, they will know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another. And we have a skeptical world who refuses to put their faith in Jesus, not because Jesus isn't trustworthy, but because the people who claim to know Jesus don't treat them like Jesus would treat them. Anyone who actually does their research they will see that there is as much evidence that Jesus rose from the dead as any other historical event. It's not a matter of whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. That's as much historical fact as any other historical fact. There's just as much evidence for that as any other event that occurred in human history. The problem has always been, are we going to follow this new command of Jesus? Are we going to listen to Jesus? And love people the way he has loved us. Galatians 5 and 6 says this. It says, for in Christ Jesus there is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. It has no value. The only thing that counts. Look at this. Is faith expressing itself through love. Notice that he doesn't say the only thing that matters is faith. We've got a lot of that. The faith that isn't expressed through love expresses itself in other ways. And this is our issue. When we don't express faith through love, what begins to happen is we start to express faith through through religious routines. This This isn't just a problem for us in the new covenant. This has been a problem throughout human history. In Isaiah 58 and 6 the, the Bible says there, God said, it, I, I don't want the kind of fasting that's just you restraining from food. He says, the kind of fasting that I want is the kind of fasting that looses the chains of injustice. It's the type of fasting that untides the cords of the yoke. It's the type of fasting that sets the oppressed free and breaks every yoke. He says, this is the kind of fast I want. I don't want a fast that just turns to me and says, God, I'm not going to eat this food and I'm going to suffer for you. He said, that's not even the kind of fast I want. I want a fast that doesn't just set you free. I want a fast that sets other people free. 
And if we're not careful, if we don't have a faith that expresses itself through love, we will have a faith that faith that expresses itself through religious routines. And God said in Amos, he said, I hate your religious routines. <laughs> but Robbie, bring back the grace stuff. This is grace stuff. This is not under law. This is new covenant. You're like, great, bring back the grace where there's no responsibility and no commitments and no commands. I'm sorry, there's no such thing as a grace that has no commitment and no commands and no demands on your life. There's no such thing as that. <laughs> Jesus says, this is a command I give to you. It's not optional. And faith that doesn't express itself through love, it gets disconnected from love. It leads to legalism. Hosea 6 and 6 says, For I desire, God says, I desire steadfast love and not burnt offerings. Luke 11 and 42 says, Woe to you Pharisees because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. In other words, he's not undoing the principle of giving a tenth of your income. He's just saying the problem with you is that you obsess over the tenth and you don't love anybody. Faith that isn't expressed through love values gifts above fruit. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Do you see how that faith by itself just becomes religious activity? Faith by itself just becomes services and routine and function and ritual. And God says, I don't want any of your function. I don't want you to have lips that call me by name, but have hearts that are far from me. I don't want you to say you love me and hate your brother. Because it's impossible to love me, 1 John 4 says, and hate your brother. Notice God's concern was not, was not loving, oh man, notice God's concern was not that you, you can't love me and not love your brother. He was saying you can't love, you can't be unloving to your brother and love me. God's concern was not love for him. God's concern was love for your brother. James would argue that faith without works is dead. Again, not works of the law, not keeping the commands of Moses. That's not what he's talking about in James chapter two. He's not talking about works of law. He's talking about works of love. The works that the Bible says that we were predestined for. James 2, 15 through 16 says, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you don't give them the things which are needed for the body, what does that kind of faith profit you? 
So he's not talking about works of the law, he's talking about works of love. A faith that doesn't express itself in love is a dead faith, James says. And this love that Christ had for us will change everything about how we live this life. It'll change everything. Do you know what it'll do? It'll keep you from losing your cool over politics over Thanksgiving. <laughs> That's what it'll do. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Let's go there. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I want to I use this scripture, these verses, to, to, to express some things to you over the next few minutes we have together. Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 1. It says this, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to each of you, the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. So Paul says, in your relationships with one another, how should you act? Have this mind, the same mind that was in Christ. What does he say? Even though God himself and Jesus were equal in nature, in authority, in character. Jesus is God. Jesus is the full expression of God. Even though he is like God, he says he didn't use his God-likeness to his advantage. In other words, God doesn't leverage his authority over you to change you. He demonstrates his love for you to change you. It was his sacrifice, not his miracles. It was his love, not his perfection. It was his kindness, not his God-likeness that changed me. It was his sacrificial death on the cross that made a way for me to be saved. It was the fact that he could have come as God and said, I'm God, shut up and listen to me. But he didn't do that. He came and he humbled himself like a servant and he died even a death on the cross. Why? Because God never uses in the new covenant his authority as leverage over you. He uses his love for you as a way to compel you into righteousness. This is, this is how the new works. It's not that God isn't trying to get you to do something in the new. It's just that how he motivates you to do something in the new is different. In the new, we don't obey our parents because we're afraid of being stoned to death. We obey our parents because we want to love them like Jesus loves them. That's good, man. Paul himself abandoned the old. He said in Philippians, he said, whatever gains, whatever Gains. He's not talking about secular accomplishments or pursuits. 
He's not out here like, you know, whatever Super Bowl rings I won, I'm just laying them down for Jesus. It's not what he's talking about. <laughs> I appreciate all the guys who are like, you know, I, I lay down, but he's not even talking about secular accomplishments. In, in the same way that, that when, 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 when he uses the language of I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, he's not talking about lifting 300 pounds. He's actually talking about giving. <laughs> so, okay. Just trying to help you out. Context really matters, guys. It really matters. One of my favorite things about this series is that some people have disagreed so much with what I've been teaching that they actually started reading their Bible. That's really awesome to me. I really am grateful for that. <laughs> it's always the ones who are like, I'll die for the Bible, who've never even read the Bible. <laughs> He's referring to all of his accomplishments under the old covenant. Philippians 3, 7, he says, but whatever gains were to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And notice how Paul teaches in the new and how Paul teaches in his letters. He never leverages the old covenant as motivation for Christian behavior. He never goes, well, Leviticus says. As a matter of fact, he never goes, well, the Bible says. No, no, no. he says, Jesus said. Jesus left us an example. And he's always appealing. He's never threatening them with hellfire. He's always appealing to their new nature in Christ. Let me just give you an, an example of that. He's appealing to identity. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20. He says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Verse 19 says, do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Notice he's not saying, hey, honor God with your bodies or go to hell. He's saying in light of the fact that you have been bought with a price, you have been purchased by God, you belong to God, you are justified, you are saved, you are sanctified. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 6, 11. He, when he's, he makes a list of all of these sins that people who do these will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he's saying, of such were some of you. You used to act like that. But that's not who you are anymore. Notice he's not appealing to, to the danger of hell. He's saying, you used to be a person who hadn't inherited the kingdom. You used to be a person who lived these kind of lifestyles. And those lifestyles kept you from really seeing who God was. 1 Corinthians 6 and 11, he says, that's what some of you were. But watch, what, watch how he motivates them. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. He would not say, well, Exodus says. He would say, look what God has done for you in light of that. Don't turn your body over to those things. Turn your body over to Christ because you are God's possession. He owns you. He resides in you. He lives in you. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. In light of that, now live. Oh, man. He would point you to Jesus. How do I know that? Ephesians 5.25. He doesn't say, hey, husbands, love your wives the same way Solomon loved his. <laughs> oh, man. He says in Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
what do I do if I don't have the old covenant? You've got Jesus. It's a better standard. What do I do if I can't quote Moses for everything? Quote Jesus. He's a better Moses. <laughs> Matter of fact, let's talk about something really quick. In Ephesians 5, the Bible also says that we should submit ourselves to one another. And then it says that wives submit themselves to their husband, to their own husbands. I, I, I want to I address that for a minute because submit is not a very popular idea in our culture. And I totally get that, especially because of the abuses of authority that we see in the earth today, especially from men who have power and authority. The problem with the idea of submission is that for most of us, we only see it as a one-way street because we see it through the old lens and not the new covenant of Jesus which is not a wives submit to your husbands. But if you read the previous verse, the verse that says wives submit to your husbands, the word submit is not even in there in the Greek, in the original text, because it's, it's implied in the verse before. The verse before says that we should submit ourselves to one another. And then it says wives unto your own husbands. It doesn't say wives submit. We get the word submit because of the previous verses. But the idea of, a submission, of submission in our minds is only a one-way street because we never preach the verse in context. As a matter of fact, the Bible doesn't have chapters and verses in its original context. It's actually books. That's why it's so dangerous for us to take verses out of certain chapters and use them to build doctrine around because they were never isolated when they were written, if you want to talk about the scripture being the, the inspired word of God, then let's, let's talk about it in the way that it was inspired. It wasn't inspired when it became bound and they put it into some leather. It was inspired when they wrote it. And when they wrote it, it wasn't broken down in chapters and verses. And so much of our abuse of scripture has come from us pulling something out of a chapter that was surrounded by an entire book. So I get it. I, I understand because the way submission has been taught is it's a one-way street. Wives, submit to your husbands. But the verse before says that we should submit to one another. Okay. And remember, Jesus never used his authority as a way to compel the church. He used love. He used his sacrifice. This is why most husbands will struggle to have a wife that really submits her life to you because you use your authority to compel her and not your sacrifice. But your level of authority in your home is actually determined by your willingness to sacrifice in your home. And notice it says wives to your own husbands. It is not men. You are over women. You try, try to make my wife to submit to you. You will see the worst parts of me. The parts that don't love you like Jesus loves you. All right, this is good, man. Why is this important? Because authority is not a weapon 
It is a trust given to people who are willing to sacrifice. If you don't love her like Christ, she has no motivation for submission. You're not in charge of women because you're a man. The idea and the concept is not that you're in charge. The idea and the concept is that you die first. That's the concept Jesus wanted to give you. Not you're in charge. You better tell her what to do. You better take authority over that woman. He's like, no. Um, In the marriage covenant, you know how two become one? The two become one because the husband chooses to die first. Okay, well, bless God. It's really quiet up in this (laughs) Southern Baptist church all of a sudden. I didn't know. My God in heaven, help us. Peter even said this. He said, treat them with respect as the weaker vessel. What Peter means is that you are physically stronger. And he's saying, don't you ever use your strength against her. God's been dealing with me a lot about, over the past few years, about the tone of my voice in my home, especially with my wife and how I talk to my wife. And he literally said this to me. God doesn't speak to me audibly or anything, but this was just, I was praying, I was asking God, we were having an argument, and I was just wondering why she wasn't getting it. (laughs) You ever been there? And, uh, And God spoke to me, and he said, it's because she doesn't know the difference between your enemies and your friends. Because you use the same voice with your enemy as you do your best friend. If I yell at her the same way I do my enemies, how does she know she's not an enemy? My voice was not given, the strength of my voice was not given to me to yell at her to get her to submit. The strength of my voice was given to me to yell at the enemies of my house to get them to flee. But if I yell at her the same way I yell at my enemies, how does she know the difference? Galatians chapter 2 verse 6 says something really interesting. Galatians chapter 2 says, Bear one one another's burdens and what? Fulfill the law of Christ. Jesus doesn't have any rules. (laughs) Get out of here with that nonsense. Jesus even teaches us that if we have an offense with our brother or sister, he tells us, In Matthew, he says, chapter 5, he says, hey, before you offer that gift to me, go fix that offense with them. And then once that's taken care of, come back and offer your gift to me. The problem with us is is that we have become content with offering sacrifices to God without being right with our brothers and sisters. And this is out of order. God knows this because we're prone to do the least. Remember the conversation about forgiveness? I mean, I'm, I'm going to forgive, but just like tell me what the limit is. Is it seven times? <laughs> Jesus is like, oh, you're cute. That's cute. That's cute. How about seven times 70? That's four. 
How? So what did they say? Increase our faith. Why? Because the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. Matthew 20 and 25, Jesus says this to his disciples. He calls them together. He says, you know that the rulers of this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. You want to lead your home, serve your home. If you don't serve your home, you can't lead your home. You want to be a leader in the church, serve the church. You want to be a leader in the community, serve the community. Paul knew this all too well. How? How do you know? Well, Paul weaponized the law. Paul weaponized Judaism. Paul oversaw the torture, imprisonment, and murder of Christians. And when you use the old to judge others... Jesus came to Paul and when he encountered him and his name was Saul, he said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When you use the law to judge others, you're not just persecuting them. Jesus says, you are persecuting me. See, remember the most embarrassing and shameful parts of our history as Christians have nothing to do with anything Jesus commanded. The most shameful parts of our history and indefensible moments of Christianity have everything to do with Christians leveraging old concepts for their own personal gain. But in the same way, the most selfless, kind, sacrificial, world-changing moments in human history are the result of people honoring and obeying the command of Jesus to love each other the way Christ Loved us. So wherever there's a mixture of law and grace, there will always be what? A lack of forgiveness, a lack of empathy, empathy, a posture of moral superiority. A self-righteous people who justify their anger by claiming to act as executor of God's anger and a representative of God's anger. The only problem I've discovered with most judgmental people is that the judgment actually comes from a place of jealousy. Have you ever noticed, it's, and you, you've seen this across the board with Christian leaders, once they hone in on a particular sin that they find offensive and they want to rail against, have you ever noticed that when their life comes tumbling down and they are exposed for who they really are, they actually struggle with the same sin that they have been railing against the world over? Why? Because that type of judgment comes from a place of jealousy. I'm over here serving God and they get to live however they want to. And you're just sitting back waiting for God to judge them. All the while you're struggling because you desire to do the same thing yourself. Oh, that's really good. I love how quiet it is in this church this morning because it means you are thinking. Jesus' followers, listen to me, don't don't show their devotion to God by devotion to God. They don't show their devotion to God by fasting, by prayer, by Bible reading, by church attendance. They show their devotion to God by how they treat people who God gave his life for. 
just practically think about it. If you really want to love me, if you really want to love me, Robbie, if you wanted to love me, the greatest way that you could express your love to me is to love my kids. Not how you want to love them, not how you love yourself, but love them the way that Jesus loved them. Luke 6.32 says this. Well, Robbie, I get it, man. I love the people of God. I love the house of God. Luke 6.32, though, says if you only love those who love you, you should not get any credit for that. Even sinners love those who love them. Wow. Let me give you a practical way to begin to love people. I could tell you, hey, go serve at a soup kitchen, go give, go get one of those things out in the lobby, make somebody's wish or make somebody's Christmas come true. But Paul said, hey, you can give your whole body away to be burned. But if you don't have love, you're nothing. Let me, let me give you a practical way to begin to love people. Allow sorrow to temper your anger. In Matthew 9 and 36, the Bible says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. One of the things that's gonna happen to you is you serve Jesus. Will you go ahead and stand with me? I'm gonna let you go and just right, right now, just a moment. Is that the closer you get to the Lord, there's gonna, in you, there's gonna grow this depth of hatred for sin, Right? Friendship with the world is enmity with God. We, we don't love the things of this world. We love the people in this world. We don't love the things of this world. Romans 12, 9 through 10 says this. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. How? Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring one another. What's going to happen as you follow Jesus, there's this hatred of sin that's going to rise up. Not because you hate people, because you hate what sin does to people. But if you're not careful, if you don't temper your anger with sorrow, you will let that anger take over and you will become judge and executioner. And that is not your place. So the Bible says this, it tells us like Jesus, he saw people and instead of looking at them in judgment, the Bible says he looked at them and he said, they're like sheep without a shepherd. Allow sorrow to temper your anger. When you see someone in sin, I know it angers you, but let your sorrow, the sadness that you feel for what that sin does to that person, take over so that you can still do what love does. What does it say? You take delight in honoring them, not just the people who are honorable, but the word honor means to give value to someone. What God is saying is in the middle of the most disgusting things humans could possibly do, I want you to still see them as someone who is valuable to me, someone that I died for, someone that I gave my life for. Amen. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for your word. We ask that we would just continue to follow in the footsteps, follow the words, follow the teaching, follow the life follow the example of Jesus. I pray the conviction would overwhelm us today. Not a conviction that we need to run out of here and start doing works. No, man, a conviction that would overwhelm us, that we would see people as not things to be fixed, but image bearers of God who need to be loved. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
and amen. I love you. Our altar team will be up front. Thank you for being here this morning. We'll see you guys soon. Happy Thanksgiving. Christmas is better.